Well, we are doing what I thought was going to be a short series, but I'm not going to guarantee that, uh, on John 13 through 17. And I'm calling this, this is really from my own notes, but I might as well share it with you. I'm calling it the, ma- the Master and the Disciple. And I call it that because this section is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples before he was arrested. And, and it culminates in what is known as his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And The reason we're working through this section of John is because it's very instructive on what it is to be a disciple of Christ as modeled and taught by the Christ, by Jesus himself. And given just how highly individualistic our culture is, you know, just how strong, how strong the impulse, the drive to self-centeredness or happiness or pleasure as as the goal of our life, I think these chapters are really needed uh, for us and our life together as God's people in Greenville right now. I mean, personally, I I think I need this. I think I really need this. The war I fight daily in my heart and mind, which means most people will never see it as I'm going through it, which is true of you as well. The daily fight in my heart and my mind is to pursue myself or my happiness, or my pleasure, all of it at the expense of my God and my family and my friends, you, and the wider community. So that's why we're doing this. So this week we pick it up with Jesus having finished teaching the crowds during his Passion Week. Uh, That's the very end of chapter 12. And now we find him with his disciples celebrating the Passover, his final Passover. Chapter 13, pick it up with verse 1. Now, before the feast of of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, 
that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for this time we have together in your word that it would be good and useful that your spirit would attend to this, that we might see Jesus, that we might have character shaped to his, that we might find that his modeling here is what we want to do too, not because it will earn us anything, because it doesn't, but because this is how you are and because you have set us apart to be your people. You are the master and we are your servants, yet you have called us your friends. And as your friends, we want to walk in your ways because they are the best ways. We pray then, help us to see that and to walk in it and for these things to go deep into our hearts and minds this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Conservative commentator Dennis Prager uh, argues that one of the driving motivations for the World War II generation was to give their kids a better life than the one they had. And they conceived of that better life almost exclusively in economic and material terms. Now, obviously, that generation is way more complicated than that quick statement. But still, I think he's basically right. And of course, coming out of the Great Depression, it makes sense for that, that earlier generation to want for their kids something that they did not have when they were kids. And I'm sympathetic to how hard it must have been for them growing up in that especially having had grandparents that lived through that period. But it also makes sense of why people in our circles, you know, some two to three, even four generations later, tend to be dismayed when, for example, talented young adults choose careers or jobs that net them less money than what they could have possibly otherwise made, even though that career path benefits other people and the common good. The assumption, of course, is that a good life is only as good as the economics that go along with it. So, for example, I, I knew an incredibly gifted young woman when I was doing campus ministry who pursued medical school with the purpose of working with an indigenous, poor, underserved population in this country. And the thing about medical school is that really, you know, for most people who attend, you have to start working hard when you're in high school really is a freshman, and you have to excel in a wide range of skills and aptitudes and difficult subjects that the average person either can't do or doesn't have the will to do. And it's practically eight years of hard work and testing just to get into another four years of medical school with further training and testing on top of that. And even then, life does not get any easier. The hours are long and they are arduous. That's a ton of sustained hard work, sacrifice, and honing of skills, and it's why they get paid more than, say, you know, an unskilled laborer that requires no training or skill sets, and rightly so. So while her parents were very proud that she was going to be a doctor, they were dismayed that she would not be making very much money, maybe just a third of what her colleagues would earn. I mean, why do all that schooling? All that hard work if it's not going to benefit you and your future children financially. And it's not like she was doing the job for free, of course. It was that she would be making less 
money than she would have otherwise been making. I mean, why choose a job that's only pulling down 70,000 when you could have a job that's maybe pulling down 220 or more? I mean, what possible reason could she have for doing that? Now, of course, it's fine to be a physician who does financially well. I want them to, in fact. I think they deserve it for the kind of work they do, but we need to ask why people in our circles are resistant to that young woman's choice. Why does it seem foolish? Why does it seem like a waste of education and work when the medical profession exists to help people and when it is clear that the Bible commends helping the poor, the wretched, and the marginalized? See, the character that Jesus models to us in the gospel, it absolutely involves hard work and self-sacrifice and delayed gratification, things that many people in our circles commend and love. But that character is not for the purpose of economic improvement. Now, you may be financially well off. I think we all are, but you might not be. Like a good number of Christians in the rest of the world, that's not the purpose of what Jesus teaches. No, in fact, what Jesus reveals about how he wants his people to mold their character to his character It may cost you. In fact, it will cost you time, your money, your pleasure, your happiness. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that that God knows what we need and how much we worry about it. And that material goods and economic vibrancy, they're important. Jesus says as much. But even so, he says, seek God's kingdom first. That is, define your work, your skills, your talents, your circumstances by God, as opposed to defining God by our desires for wealth, security, and happiness, and pleasure. So even though lots of people talk about the sort of character traits of self-sacrifice and hard work and, and that kind of thing, the Christian difference is that our character is shaped by and put in service to the triune God for his glory and the good of our neighbors. It's why it's really important. It's really important that we be constantly asking, like the World War II generation did, but I think they got it wrong. What kind of life do I think is the good life? What kind of life do we want to give to our children? What kind of people do we hope they grow into? What kind of character will they have? Is it merely a character shaped to economic growth for the sake of personal happiness? like what's been on display for the last 80 years and what may be driving many of us? Or is it a character shaped to Jesus that is open to wherever he may lead us? So what we find with Jesus in John 13 is very different than what many American Christians assume. No, in many ways, it is a complete referendum, if not an indictment of how We have assumed life should be lived and to what purposes and to what goals our character should be shaped. Well, before we get to the central action of of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, let me point out just a few key things that really set the stage for why he does what he does. First, Jesus, it says there, knew that the pinnacle of his ministry was happening. He knew. It was all coming down to the next hours and days and that he would soon be at his father's side again. He knew he had loved his people well, particularly his close disciples, and he was determined, this is such an important phrase, he was determined to love them 
to the end. He wanted to consistently live for his people all the way to the end. And it's telling that he loves his people who, as John puts it here, were in the world. Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. His people, at least at this moment, were both in and of the world at the same time. You see, to get what that's after, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the fullest revelation of God, the Holy One of Israel, came to dwell with humanity in the midst of their sin and suffering. That is, he dwelt, he lived among, he loved a sinful and wrecked people. So put it like this, you think it's hard to be around people who are different from you? You know, maybe you think it's a little unnerving to drive through a neighborhood that makes you feel a little less safe or be around people who definitely have different politics and a different lifestyle to go with it, or maybe just people who just annoy the stew out of you. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. What Jesus did, this is the best illustration I could come up with, so just bear with it. What Jesus did was similar to seeing a person, and I want you to imagine whatever political adversary you hate the most and you cannot stand, that person, he saw them struggling and dying in a septic tank of their own making, a septic tank that was ruining his creation and killing them, and out of his love and his sympathy and his heartbrokenness for that person, he jumped in. Jesus' reason for doing this, what compelled the Holy One, think of that septic tank illustration, the Holy One of Israel to come tabernacle amongst us, giving his life for ours, was his love for his Father and his love for humanity, his creation. He loves in a way that we don't. It's why his love is so scandalous. It's why when you pay attention to that word grace, that word gospel, It's offensive at how many people God loves. It's his love from beginning to the end that's central to the action of this chapter. Now, second, in the midst of this, this is actually fascinating. Satan shows up a lot. Satan was already at work on Judas and had been for a while. Verse two tells us that Satan was working on Judas even as Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about those sorts of things a bit more next week, I think. It's just fascinating to me that this is happening, that Jesus prepares a table for his people in the presence of his enemies and shows kindness to them, including one who claimed to be his friend. I mean, think about that. Jesus fed and washed Judas even when he knew Judas would reject him. And later in the chapter, it says that Satan entered Judas. And there's obviously a lot we could say about that, but it's enough to say that Judas gave himself fully over to Satan and was in turn walking in Satan's ways. Third, even so, Jesus knew that God the Father had given him the authority to do what he was there to do and that he had been sent from the Father and was going to return to the Father. What that means is that Jesus lived in light of God, both his past, his present moment, and his future. And he knew, you see, where he had come from, the right hand of the Father. And he knew where he was going, again, back to the right hand of the Father. And he, in turn, knew that in his present moment, which would soon include his arrest, his betrayal, his torture, his crucifixion, his three days in the belly of the earth, to use Jonah's language, in that present moment, 
He could make the hard choice to love his father and his people because he knew what was coming afterwards. This is Jesus's version of delayed gratification. Let me say that again, because this is really important for us. This is Jesus's version of delayed gratification. He can sacrifice himself now for the sake of his people because he knows what will come later. So a young, talented student can sacrifice economic gain in this life, serving people nobody really wants to serve because she's convinced this life is not all there is and her future is bound up with Jesus. It's beautiful. It's hard. It's crazy, right? Otherwise, if there is no future beyond these moments, the sort of character we see Jesus demonstrating is it rude, irrational. It's utterly like a fairy tale. It's foolishness. No, it's, it's actually worse because it's meaningless, right? It's meaningless. It does nothing in the end because everybody dies. I mean, why die for these people? Why sacrifice your pleasure and your happiness now and in the immediate future? You got nothing. If, if this life is all there is. It makes no sense. So Jesus gets up and he strips down to his underwear, which means he was basically, get the image in your mind, bare-chested uh, with a big towel that's wrapped around his waist. And he bends down and he washes his disciples' feet. And probably, as, as most of you know, uh, this was a job reserved for the lowest servant of the house. And for good reason. It was a disgusting demeaning job. You know, of course, we all know feet smell, but feet that have been traveling in sandals in towns with dirt roads that were used by all kinds of animals, well, it wasn't just an issue of sweaty sock feet, let alone dust. In Matthew 16, Peter, speaking for the disciples, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And all the gospel accounts are unified in their belief that Jesus is the promised Christ, the son of the living God and the true king of this world, king, king, Lord of lords. And so what do we see that person, the son of God doing? Washing his disciples' feet. You know, we're so used to this story that we miss just how utterly shocking this moment is and how it, it reveals God's character. See, Jesus, the, the logos, the word of God, the temple made flesh, dwells among his people. He takes the last place. He strips down to his waist and washes the dried filth from his friend's feet as the lowest of servants. You only choose to do that. You only choose to do this humbling, disgusting work when you really love someone. As any parent knows, you will not choose to clean up that unless you really love that child. And that is who our God is. That is what the King of Kings heart looks like. That's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And this gives further depth to what Jesus means in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this, this all-powerful king, creator of the heavens and the earth, the lion of Judah, is not domineering. He's not tyrannical. He's not 
seeking after his own glory or his own trophies. No, he's gentle and lowly. It's not above him to wash his people's feet. No, he chooses the last place for their sake. And Peter does not get what's happening. It's too weird. Really, it's, it's too offensive for him to take in. It would be like, again, this is the best illustration I could come up with, and it's not that good, but here we go. It'd be like going to a huge military parade in Washington, D.C. Think of a Memorial Day parade, or think of you know, an incredible celebration of, of patriotism, or whatever it may be, of this country. And as you watch the cavalry on their horses go by, you see your president, the one you voted for the one you have placed all your hopes for restoring America's futures, walking behind the horses, keeping the road clean of their poop. And Jesus tells Peter, you don't get this now. You don't understand what I'm modeling for you. You don't see how this is a symbol of what I'm doing to redeem you and in turn what the character of my people must be, but you will. And Peter, he refuses to be washed. And Jesus says, okay, then you have no part in me. And of which, of course, he, he changes his tune and says, I'll take the whole show, please. And, and he misses the point. I'm sure part of the reason Peter refused was because he was scandalized by Jesus's humility and his gentleness and how it was like a spotlight exposing Peter's own self-centeredness and lack of humility. And Maybe you've experienced this. When you are around someone who is genuinely humble or kind or sacrificial, it can be completely unnerving because it has a way of exposing how much you are not those things. You know, it's fascinating, but, but lots of people don't want to be served unless they are being served by someone they think is less than them. So no president can serve behind the cavalry, but there's other people we can have to do that. You know, that Jesus would take on this role, that he would do this job exposes our motivations and how we view other people and their worth and their value to us. To belong to this God, you see, is to take on his character and therein no human, no human is beyond our respect and honor, even when we really disagree with him. The scandal of the gospel, you see, is that Jesus strips down he gets on the floor and he scrubs our filthy feet. He knows your sin and he gently and humbly puts himself in a place to make you whole. As he says to Peter, unless he washes us, we have no part in him. And of course, just as this initially made Peter uncomfortable, so Judas, he outright rejected it. See, Judas, Judas wanted Jesus to be king, but he didn't want Jesus on Jesus' terms. He didn't think the king should be walking behind the horses. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, after he had washed their feet, Jesus gets dressed again, takes his place at the table, and he asked his disciples if they understood what he had done for them. You see, Jesus, just as prophets like, say, Jeremiah, just go read the Old Testament, you'll find this. Just as the prophets had done, he was enacting, he was living out a symbol. He was teaching by example what it is for God to love his people and in turn for his people to follow in his footsteps. You know, as John says, since God has loved us, 
let us love one another. You know, by choosing to wash his disciples' feet, by showing them such tenderness and humility and gentleness, Jesus gives shape to what love actually looks like. This is not love from afar. This is not a sappy, romantic, emotional, I feel like loving you today sort of love. No, this is love worked out in messy self-sacrifice for the sake of the other. This is real. This is hard. And Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you know what? That's good. That's correct. If this is how I live, then you must do it too. If this is the character of the king, then it should be the character of his people too. If I'm willing to choose to wash your filthy feet, not out of some sense of duty, or, but because I love you, shouldn't you also live like this for each other? And he even goes farther and says, if you know this is true, if you know this is how God really is, or as we might put it, if you believe in justification by faith alone, you will be blessed for following in Jesus's footsteps and living it out. Not just holding it mentally to be true, but walking as if it is true. It shows just how you know, little we understand Jesus' teaching when we, when we talk about the centrality of the gospel, but then refuse to sacrifice our time and energy maybe even our lives for the sake of other people. And what's so telling about this whole scene, really what's terrifying about it, is that all the way through this, Jesus keeps coming back to Judas, which means he keeps coming back to Satan, who is there. He is present in this. Jesus is forcing the disciples to think through what kind of king they want Jesus to be, and in turn, what kind of disciple they want to be. See, Judas was by all accounts at least an initial believer and disciple. Judas was on the road for three years with Jesus. That's a commitment. He claimed and preached that Jesus was Lord too. Think about that. He preached that. Jesus loved Judas to the end. But once Jesus started talking about dying at the hands of his enemies, Judas grew dissatisfied and abandoned him at the end. It's not unlike the rich young ruler. So let's think through this. You know, Jesus says those who belong to him will walk in his ways, but well, we're kind of 2,000 years removed from this situation. We aren't exactly in positions to either die on actual crosses or culturally to literally wash other people's feet. No, our, our character, our moral choices, our discipleship is lived out in ordinary small-town Alabama life, which is not without its difficulties, but doesn't really come with the threat of crucifixion. And I don't know about you, but, but personally, I'm incredibly thankful for that. Now, that doesn't mean our calling is easy, though, especially as everything about our culture is pushing us to pursue our desires over everything else. That is, if you really think about our culture, it is teaching us gain the world at the expense of your soul because does your soul really matter? So I would suggest that, that opposed to having to fight to remain faithful because of the threat of physical violence, our fight is more subtle and often unseen because it's a constant interior battle waged in our hearts and our minds that's worked out in places like the church, the workplace, the classroom, the locker room, our marriages, and Little League games. It's the battle against giving in to self-centeredness when everything is telling us, no, 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 choose yourself, versus choosing the path of other-centeredness. It's, it's the difference between looking inward and looking outward. 
I mean, just consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verses four and five. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, that term reasonable can also be translated as gentleness. And what Paul is after is that the church's character should look just like what we see here with Jesus. A gentle reasonableness. Why? Because, you know, as Jesus trusted, this is how we start off talking, the Lord is at hand. That is, the Lord is with us. He is ruling. We know who he is and where we are going. So when outsiders come into this community, they should see a character of reasonable gentleness among us. And as an aside, let me commend you about that. Let me encourage you about that. You know, since what, March 2020, this pandemic and all the things about vaccines and masks and politics and elections and all that, it has torn churches apart. It has torn them apart. There are churches in this denomination right now that are absolutely split over this, badly split. Friends and neighbors who are supposed to love each other who aren't talking. That has not happened here. Let's be honest, we don't all agree on everything. We don't see everything eye to eye. Even on the session, there is disagreement on this, but what we are unified in, what at least I see, and maybe I'm naive, but this is what I think I see in this congregation is a love for Christ and a love for neighbor. I think I see the reasonableness of gentleness among you. Let me encourage you, keep it up. It's a blessing. It's beautiful. It is the way we should be living. And it's like what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse three. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You know, that, that's the issue that we face all the, the time, that we maybe are thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, that maybe we are the kings of the castle and everyone else is just a moron. And maybe what we need to be doing is thinking less of ourselves and more of everybody else, seeking to honor each other even more. I mean, think about it. How did Christ think about himself and how was that demonstrated in his life? Just in John chapter 13, he didn't think he was worthless. He didn't think, oh, I'm not worth anything. He didn't think that at all. No, he so valued the lives of his friends that scrubbing their nasty feet was not beneath him. It's like how Ray Ortland and, and Sam Alberry recently described it. They said, there are two ways to enter a room. Two ways to enter a room. Here I am. Notice me. Will you serve me? Or there you are. I notice you. How can I serve you? And it's the difference between seeing life, say, as a restaurant, and you're the customer expecting to be served in exactly the way you want, or seeing yourself in that same restaurant as a server, looking to meet someone else's need. And the world says it is far better to be the customer. You deserve to be served. Jesus, though, who actually owns the restaurant and everyone in it, he chose to be the busboy. 
It's like what Keller is fond of saying. He says, lust says, what can you do for me? That's the customer mindset. Love says, what can I do for you? That's the server mindset. And that doesn't just apply to sex. It applies to how we treat everyone. Is this person a tool I'm going to use for my happiness? And if I can't use them, will I see them as an obstacle to my happiness? Or is this a person I I need to serve and to show kindness and patience and dignity and respect to? And here's the thing. You know, what Jesus modeled, it applies to every relationship. Every single one we have. Every single circumstance. Every single place we go. This is something we fight to cultivate all day, every day. So just ask yourself, we could do a thousand of these, but let's just, just ask yourself, what kind of an employee are you? What kind of a boss are you? What do you like when you are an actual customer in a restaurant or some business? And how do you treat those who serve you, especially when things are not up to your standards? What kind of a husband or wife are you? Do you look like Ephesians 5? You know, Ephesians 5 is a gender role meditation on John 13 of what Christ and his church look like together. When I think about this church again, you know, this church, unbelievably generous financially. Unbelievably. It's really quite overwhelming. And I I think the real question that dogs us and, and, and gets at this issue is, what are you willing to sacrifice your time for? And for whom? You know, I think we, we value our time way over and above our money. I just think we do. What hobby or pleasure or happiness are you willing to give up for the sake of someone else? Maybe especially for people that don't really seem worth your time or your talent or your skills. You know, Christians love to talk about ministry and being disciples and servants. I mean, it's just the Christian language, right? until the time comes to actually do as the king did. As Jesus makes abundantly clear and his disciples, they testify to this later in their lives, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, because they didn't get it in this moment. To walk with the king, to pursue a character that is shaped to his character, to be his disciple, it will cost you. It will. Maybe not on a cross, maybe not by taking you know, an underpaying, underappreciated job, but at times it's going to cost you your happiness. It just will. It's going to cost you your time and your pleasure. It just will, which for us are really the marks of what we count as wealth and treasure these days. But if you are willing to take the way of the king, as Jesus himself says, you will be blessed for that. And that blessing is God himself, which you already have, but deeper. It will be deeper. That treasure of God knows no end. That spring of water, there's no bottom to it. And for so many of us, and this is what I fear for myself, I'm just treading water. I've barely jumped in. And I pray for us as a people, I pray this for me, that we'll be the kind of people that jumps in, that we We want to be the kind of people that want to go deeper with our God and want to pursue his character, knowing what the cost may be. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, I pray for this church because I love these people and I know you love them far more than I ever could. I thank you for them and their hearts and their minds. I thank you for their passions and their skills and their talents and how each one of them is uniquely gifted to serve you in the places that you have put them. So I pray for us as a people that we will want to sacrifice ourselves for you and for our neighbors, knowing that you've promised to give us many good things that we indeed enjoy so much now. Lord, may we be a people that continues to give to one another, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to this community, because this town is worth it, because you have said it is. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.